IBIS, or in-body image stabilization, is rumored to be coming in select DSLRs from Canon in the near future. And this week's extended topic, photography gear luggage for your photography gear. All of this coming up on episode 29 of the Liam Photography Podcast. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 29. I want to take a moment to thank all of my listeners for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in iTunes and anywhere else you might be listening to this show. And also be sure to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group, and I'll give you a little bit more about the Facebook group at the tail end of the show. So the first item I wanted to talk about today is a story from canonrumors.com that IBIS is coming to select next-generation Canon DSLRs. Now, it had been recently reported that a patent showing IBIS in a DSLR from Canon has been circulating around, and most of us have known for quite some time that IBIS was coming to the next EOS R cameras, as Canon had already confirmed that. But that was the first indication that IBIS was also being developed for DSLRs when information on the patent that Canon filed circulated. As always, just because something appears in a patent doesn't automatically mean that it will definitely appear in a released product. Sometimes companies will file a patent for a new feature or technology to put in one of their existing products or an existing product line. But then, for technical reasons, something doesn't flesh out right, and it doesn't end up coming to fruition. Now, to give you a good example of this, some of you may remember that a little over a year ago, or maybe, actually, maybe it's been closer to two years now, Apple announced at their fall event that they were going to be releasing what they called the AirPower Pad. Now, the AirPower Pad from Apple was to be a three-item charging pad for wireless charging your Apple devices. It was going to have the ability to charge your iPhone 8 or 10 or today 10S and 10S Max and 10R. It would also have the ability at the same time to charge your Apple AirPods, the first generation ones, if you bought the wireless charging case for them, or your second generation Apple AirPods, which automatically came with a wireless charging case. And then the third item that the pad was able to charge simultaneously was the Apple Watch. However, if I remember correctly, um, the caveat was it was only for Apple Watch 4 series and newer. Now, Apple had announced that they were going to be releasing this AirPower wireless charging pad uh, early the following calendar year. It never came to fruition. They never talked about it again at any of their events throughout the year into the next year. And then we heard a little bit earlier this year that they had ended up scrapping their AirPower wireless charging pad due to technical issues. And they instead recommend that you buy one from a third-party company 
um, that was mentioned in the article where they announced the cancellation or the scrapping of the air power pad. Now, I did buy a couple of the third-party three-item charging pads that Apple recommended. Now, the one thing I did like was the third-party one was actually considerably less expensive than the rumors were that the air power was going to cost. The rumor was air power was going to run $179 to $199, which is not surprising because Apple always charges a premium or what a lot of people call Apple tax. Um, and the third-party one that they recommend, and I can't remember off the top of my head the name of the company that makes it, uh, but anyways, uh, that one sells for $45. Now, I did buy a couple of them and uh, tried them out, and they are a decent wireless charging pad for three items at once. But one of the things I discovered fairly early on is it didn't do a very good job of charging the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch was extremely slow to charge on this third-party air power pad, if you will. And I reached out to the company, and they emailed me back and said, yes, they were aware of the issue with the Apple Watch not charging fast. Uh, fast enough with their pad and they said it had an issue it was an issue with the firmware but the firmware couldn't be updated by the end user so instead uh, once they released the version 2.0 of their pad they sent me replacement ones free of charge and I didn't even have to ship the old ones back so I had the old ones and the new ones because the first generation one does a great job of charging uh, two phones at once or a phone and your airpods and the new one does work much better at, and much faster at charging the Apple Watch, I'm happy to say. So that's an example of something that a company filed a patent for, but the product never actually came to light. Just to give you one example. So we are being, we are being told that Canon will definitely bring IBIS to select DSLRs in the near future, but the source wasn't sure which cameras would be getting IBIS However, the EOS 90D, which is coming in the next couple of months, would be a good bet, especially if the 90D is in fact a replacement for both the 80D and the EOS 70 Mark II, because Apple has already announced that they will not make a Mark III of the 7D. And that really bummed out a lot of shooters because the 7D is a fantastic sports camera. It is great for shooting sports. It has, I think, 10 frames a second, which is pretty good. Uh, so although it is a crop body, it is fast. Uh, it uses the same batteries as a lot of Canon's full-frame cameras, the LPE6 in E6N batteries. Um, and it's an all-around really great camera. Uh, a good friend of mine um, from the Master Photography Podcast uh, uses the 7D for shooting high school basketball and other sports, and he absolutely loves it, and it is a great camera. I have several friends that own the 7D Mark II, and they were all upset when they heard that Canon was scrapping the 7D line and not releasing a Mark III. However, the rumor is that the 90D, which is slated to be released uh, a little bit later on this year, will in fact be a combination of the 80D, which is also a super popular crop body camera from Canon. And it'll be a replacement that, that combines the 80D and the 7D Mark II's capabilities with some upgrades. So that'd be really great. And that would make a lot of those shooters extremely happy to have a 7D Mark II replacement 
that's uh, the best of two prosumer bodies at the same time. So that'll be great. Now, the other upcoming DSLR that could possibly be getting IBIS is the EOS 1DX Mark III. Now, it has already been announced that a Mark III will be released at the tail end of this year. It'll be announced or uh, possibly the earliest part of 2020. And the speculation is that Canon wants to get the 1DX Mark III to market before next summer's Olympic Games in Tokyo. Uh, Canon and Nikon like to make sure that they have the latest version of their flagship bodies available in time for the Olympic Games because there are a lot of pro sports shooters that cover the Olympics that shoot with the Canon and Nikon flagship cameras. Now, Nikon has announced that they are releasing a D6, which will probably be their last flagship DSLR. And its speculation is that Canon's 1DX Mark III will also be the last flagship DSLR for Canon. Now, there are rumors currently that Canon is going to be releasing two professional mirrorless bodies. The first one is being rumored to be called the EOS RS, which will be a high megapixel sensor model. They'll be the replacement for the 5DS and 5DSR. And I've mentioned in earlier episodes, I own the 5DSR with its beautiful 50 megapixel sensor, and that camera takes amazing images. I mean, just off the charts. That is a fantastic camera body. I've never regretted for a second buying that. And I was lucky enough to get it for a steal at the time. A professional photographer who had moved to Atlanta from Chicago uh, needed to make some money, needed to get some money. So he was selling it. He had it on Craigslist and it was brand new in the box. It had, the seals weren't even broken on the box. I kid you not. And he had it listed, I think for $2,700 or $2,800. And I'm talking, this is back when the 5DSR was still selling for around four grand at any retail store. B&H, Adorama, Amazon, anywhere. And he had all these people lowballing him, trying to buy it off him for a thousand bucks. And when I found his listing and I hit him up and he said he still had it, I said, I'll meet you right now with cash in hand because I knew it was a good deal and it was a great body. So I've never regretted buying that. And if you've been listening to this show for some time now, you'll know that I have speculated in several previous episodes that the first EOS R Pro Body was going to be the 5DS slash 5DSR replacement because Canon has already announced that they are not going to do a Mark II of those two high megapixel bodies. So it looks like the first Pro Body in the mirrorless world for Canon will be an EOS RS. It'll be the replacement for those two previously mentioned bodies. It'll have dual card slots, a high megapixel sensor, possibly 75 megapixels or maybe even 100. And it's going to be their first pro body. However, they're, they're rumored now to be following that up with what's going to be known as the EOS RX. And supposedly the EOS RX is going to be the replacement for the 1DX series. So the 1DX Mark III will be the last DSLR flagship camera from Canon, and the EOS RX will be their first flagship mirrorless body. So it's very exciting. I'm looking forward to that, and I'm sure it's going to probably be a couple of years yet before that happens. 
Uh, Canon does not replace their flagship body every year. Usually it's every couple of years or two or three years. Um, I have the 1DX Mark II, absolutely love it. It's a fantastic uh, flagship pro body with lots of frames per second for sports. And uh, it was a nice upgrade from the 1DX original. I did not own the original, um, but the Mark II had a lot of upgrades from the Mark I, and the Mark III is rumored to have quite a few upgrades from the Mark II. Now, being it's an expensive body, and my 1DX Mark II still has a lot of life to it, I'm more than likely going to stick with that for a while yet, and maybe a couple of years down the road, if the EOS RX does get released in a couple of years, uh, probably a year or so after it gets released, I'll go ahead and grab one of those to replace the 1DX Mark II, although I doubt I'll part with my Mark II. I'll probably just keep it and have two flagship pro bodies, but we'll see. Now, Nikon is also rumored to be adding IBIS to their upcoming D6, which will be exciting for the Nikon shooters. We'll have to wait and see if that does actually come to fruition. But there's a lot of positive rumbling and rumors about it, so it's more than likely something that is going to happen. All right, the next topic I wanted to talk to in this week's episode is photography gear luggage. Now, I did a blog post on this on my website back in August of 2016, and I thought it was a good subject to bring up into a podcast episode. So as a professional photographer, one of the things that you will need to consider at some point in time is luggage for your photography gear. And when it comes to packing and carrying your gear, there are several ways you can do it depending on what your needs are at any given time. Now, one of the first products I wanted to mention is waist bags. Now, these are small bags that you can wear around your waist like a regular belt, but they can carry your camera and maybe one or two lenses and a couple of batteries. You can think of them as kind of like a fanny pack for your camera. Now, there are several companies that make them from Low Pro to Targus, and both of those are excellent companies. They make great products. I've bought many products from both companies over the years. And these waste bags can generally range in quality and price from anywhere from 20 bucks to $100. Uh, now, I generally wouldn't recommend trusting your valuable camera gear to a $20 bag. I would probably err on the side of buying the higher priced model that's higher quality, but you get the general idea. And again, it depends on your personal needs. I mean, if you're somebody that carries around something small, lightweight, and compact, like an SL1, 2, or 3, those are a really small crop body, cannon body, uh, fairly lightweight, or maybe you got an M50 mirrorless uh, crop body. They're fairly lightweight, so you could probably get away with using a $20 or $30 waste bag. Me personally, I would not trust any of my gear to something that inexpensive. That's just me, I guess, but uh, probably a lot of people out there, especially when you've made a sizable investment in your cameras and camera bodies and lenses. Now, the next item I want to talk about, and this is one that I'm fairly familiar with because I do own several of these, and that is camera backpacks. Now, these are just like they sound. You strap them onto your back and you carry your gear that way, which is great if you're hiking or walking around an event. They usually can hold one or two bodies and five to six lenses. And they also have compartments for batteries, uh, filters, your iPad or other tablet, your laptop, whether it's a MacBook or a PC, and hoops that hold your tripod or monopod. 
Now, many of those do have those added on, especially in the last couple of years. It's become more and more common for these backpacks to have some sort of Velcro straps either on the side or on the bottom that'll allow you to strap your monopod or your tripod to them to make it much easier to carry those objects in the field. Now, the camera backpacks can range in size from small to considerably large and are made by a wide variety of companies from Lowepro to Targus to Canon to Nikon. And there's quite a few others. Peak Design has some backpacks out there. Um, and there are some others that make some really nice high quality backpacks. And they can generally range in price anywhere from $40 to $300. Now, again, how much money you end up spending on it is going to not only uh, is not only going to count towards the quality, but also the capabilities of the backpack. So, of course, backpacks that are on the higher end of the price point spectrum are going to be higher quality. They are also going to be capable of carrying much more gear than your less expensive backpacks. Now, some of the ones I have are capable of holding up to three bodies and seven or eight lenses, as well as filters, batteries for your camera, the charging system for the camera, uh, your filters, your iPad, your laptop, and so on and so forth. Uh, many of them even have, many of the higher end uh, backpacks will also have compartments for your speed lights, or you can just generally put the speed light in one of your lens compartments. Now, the other nice thing is uh, with a lot of these backpacks, the compartments inside can be modified. So in other words, a lot of times the dividers for your lenses and your speed lights and stuff like that are Velcro panels. They're attached using Velcro and they're usually reinforced with some cardboard in the middle and a lot of padding and stuff like that to keep your precious gear safe. But the nice thing is, is they often have Velcro on one end or both ends to where you can rearrange those panels for whatever configuration you want. So if you have, let's say, a considerably large lens, like a 100 to 400 Mark II, or maybe a 150 to 600, it's a good size lens. And in order to carry it in the backpack, that lens is going to take up the equivalent of three or four compartments that would normally hold smaller lenses or lenses and speed lights. You can basically pull out these dividers and then re-secure them in a different fashion to accommodate that larger lens without too much trouble. So that's another positive thing, especially when you get into the more expensive backpacks. Now, the third topic as far as gear luggage, the third item is roller bags. Now, these are similar to suitcases that people use to travel when they fly. Uh, they hold your gear and have a telescoping handle with wheels on the bottom, and you can pull them behind you, which makes it a lot more convenient. They can hold usually two to four bodies and anywhere from four to eight lenses. They have compartments for memory cards, speed lights, filters, laptops, iPads, tripods, and other items. And they usually have multiple pockets and compartments in varying sizes on the outside of the bag as well as on the inside. Now, these are made by the usual camera luggage makers such as Lowepro, Targus, Canon, etc. And they can run in price from anywhere from $100 to $500 depending on the size and the materials that they are made from. You can also buy specialized roller cases that will carry your studio lighting for you as well. 
Now, as I mentioned, these can be extremely convenient to have because you can pull it behind you just like you would a suitcase. You know, so if you're a photographer that has to fly a lot for shoots, uh, for client shoots, you can easily uh, pull your camera gear along behind you um, in one bag, roller bag with a telescoping handle, and then have a second roller bag with a telescoping handle that, of course, has your clothing and toiletries and all that kind of stuff. And it just makes it a lot easier to get around someplace like the bustling big city airport. Now, just like the backpacks, usually these roller bags also have the movable dividers so you can rearrange them. So let's say you're going to fly out someplace for a shoot. Let's say you're flying from here in Atlanta to L.A. for a shoot with a client and you don't need to carry four bodies, but your bag is pre-configured roller bag is capable of four bodies. You can rearrange those uh, movable dividers just like in the backpacks and set it up to only carry two bodies, which then, of course, would give you more room for lenses or other accessory items such as filters, gels, uh, memory cards, extra batteries, the battery chargers, and so on and so forth. So these bags can be extremely handy. I've been thinking about picking up one myself, uh, but again, they're not inexpensive. Um, I'm probably just going to bite the bullet and buy one at some point really, really soon um, down the road just because it would make it easier for any of the times uh, doing my real estate photography where I do end up flying. Uh, my company has already sent me to Memphis and Jacksonville, but uh, did that by car uh, just because it was more convenient. And those were generally uh, a last minute thing. And the air airfare would have just been ridiculously expensive, you know, buying the tickets at the last moment. Now, the fourth category of gear luggage are briefcases. Now, these cases are usually made of high-quality aluminum, and they have foam inserts to protect your gear. The inserts can be ordered custom-cut for your gear, but that generally makes those inserts a lot more expensive. Now, the other option is, is getting these kind of cases where they have what's called pluck-and-pull foam, and basically that means that all of the foam, or the, this, the major center portion of the foam, um, in from the edges, is pre-perforated so that you can pluck and pull pieces out to make your own custom-sized pockets for your different pieces of gear. Now, the most common maker of these cases is a company called Zero Halliburton, and they generally run between $200 and $800. Now, I do have one of these aluminum cases, um, and I can't remember where the heck I got it. I think I picked it up at a flea market or something like that. And it doesn't have the foam in it anymore, so I really need to uh, get in touch with Zero Halliburton and order uh, replacement foam inserts for it because it would be nice to be able to use it on occasion. Maybe I, I would just get the, I'd probably just get the, the pluck and pull foam, the pre-perforated stuff, and then just pluck it so that it'll hold like my EOS R and maybe two lenses and, and some extra batteries and stuff like that. Now, the fifth and final item that I wanted to talk about in this week's episode is the durable plastic trunk. Now, these are usually made of high-strength plastic and, again, have the pluck-and-pull foam to custom-cut your own compartments with your fingers. Now, these are most commonly made by Pelican cases, and they can range in price from $129 to $600, depending on the size. Now, recently, Pelican started making a version of their trunks that have the telescoping handles and roller wheels so that you can pull it behind you instead of carrying it, much like a, instead of having to carry it like a footlocker, uh, which would make it more like one of the roller bags. 
Now, they also come with padlock ports on each end to help you keep your gear secure. And another interesting thing is, I don't know how many people have these kind of stores in their area, um, but in the greater Atlanta area, we have a considerable number of Harbor Freight stores. Now, Harbor Freight carries their own line of Pelican-like cases that sell for considerably less expensive, and they're very good quality, although I uh, sometimes, and it's really weird because they're all made by the same company, but I've had times where I've bought these pluck-and-pull cases at Harbor Freight, and one time I'll buy one, and the foam, the perforated foam just seems to be much higher quality than the next one I buy. And the weird thing is, I've even have had incidences where I went to Harbor Freight and I bought two or three of the same size case on the same day at the same store. And then I get home and only one has really good quality pluck and pull foam and the other two have like really crappy foam. And so I've never understood that. Uh, the other issue with their uh, knockoff cases, and I can't remember who they're made by, um, but the foam generally does not is not pre-glued into the case. So in other words, every time you flip up the lid, the egg carton type foam on the top that protects everything when you close it will fall out of the lid. And then you get frustrated and you either end up gluing it in yourself or putting it in with some hook loop tape, you know, Velcro tape that's made for like fabric and stuff like that, and then you're good to go. Uh, but now the nice thing is, is both the Pelican cases and these uh, generic ones from Harbor Freight, they do all have a certain amount of water protection. Uh, they're generally waterproof. They have a, a rubber seal gasket around the, you know, around the entire case on the inside so that once it's closed, it's watertight. And both the knockoffs and the Pelican cases do have the little air pressure valves that allow them to travel in aircraft without worrying about any air pressure issues of any kind, um, which is really nice. And like I said, I own both the Pelican brand and the, the Harbor Freight uh, third-party knockoff ones. They're all really durable as far as the, the quality of the plastic they're constructed from. Um, the other issue I've run into on occasion with the ones I buy at Harbor Freight is the latches. Um, sometimes I'll get one where the latches are like really loose. Uh, I'm not loose in the sense that they don't work properly. Uh, they won't latch properly or anything like that. Uh, but what I mean when I say loose is I bought one of these cases, a Harbor Freight, um, that I was originally using in the back of the car to carry my standard gear for my real estate photography gig. And the one thing that would frustrate me is every time you would go to close the lid, the, the latches would be flopped down in the wrong position. So you'd have to flip them all up out of your way so that you could close the darn thing all the way. That's what I mean by loose latches. Now, on all of the Pelican ones that I own, the actual name brand Pelican cases, the latches stay in the upright position when they're unlatched, when they're unfastened. So that when you go to close the lid, they're never in your way. And then you just easily with your hands, just brush them and they go into their down position and then you lock them, which is really convenient. Now I did, I have only had that problem with the sloppy latches only on one out of all the ones I bought at Harbor Freight. And we've probably bought uh, probably a dozen or so of them at Harbor Freight. And then, like I said, I do have quite a few of the name brand, brand Pelican ones. Now, generally what I do is I'll buy the, the smaller ones at Harbor Freight uh, just because they're fairly inexpensive. I mean, some of the smaller size Pelican boxes are really expensive, which is kind of crazy. 
Um, so a lot of times for the smaller sizes, I will buy the Harbor Freight third-party ones, the knockoffs or whatever you want to call them. But when I want to buy the big case, you know, the one that can hold like four bodies and seven or eight lenses, plus a bunch of batteries, the chargers, filters, and a whole bunch of other stuff. When I buy those really big ones, I'll buy the actual Pelican name brand. And I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but I do have, I think, two of those large cases made by another company. Um, and I wouldn't say they're a third-party company because it's my understanding they're every bit as high quality as Pelican. And they're considered another name brand, but I can't remember the name off the top of my head. I think it starts with an S uh, or maybe it's SB or something like that. Maybe it's just initials. But anyways, they're really good cases. So are the Pelican ones. And I first actually learned about Pelican cases when I was in the military back in the 80s. Uh, because Pelican was the company that made all of these waterproof cases um, for military equipment, especially for like our tow missile launchers and stuff like that, the anti-tank the anti weapons. They always came packed in a giant Pelican box um, that had the pre-cut foam inserts uh, that would fit the, the, the tow uh, missile system with its launchers and all that good stuff. And um, they would have the, they were weatherproof. They had the air pressure release valves on them and the, the padlock corners and all that good stuff. So that was where I got my first experience with Pelican cases. And that was back before they ever started selling them um, on, on the civilian market. They sold them just to the military. And all of the ones they sold to the military, like I said, had custom cut foam for specific types of military equipment. Now, of course, anytime you have to fly for a shoot, I would recommend going with either the, the Zero Halliburton aluminum cases or the Pelican ones, as they are the toughest and they can be stowed easily in the belly of the plane, in cargo. Uh, some pros prefer to carry their heavy gear in these cases and stow them in the belly of the plane, but then they prefer to carry their actual bodies and lenses with them in a smaller carry-on bag like a backpack or a small roller bag. Um, so that they can keep those items with them at all times and not risk the airline losing their gear en route to a shoot. Now, of course, you know, if that did happen, you could always rent some gear in the area where you're doing the shoot, hopefully, if there's a local vendor. But it'd just be a lot of hassle to lose your expensive camera body and lenses that you absolutely got to have for that shoot. Now, it might be um, more cost effective and more easy to find somebody locally that you could rent lights from. If your lights got lost, you know, they were stowed in the belly of the plane. But I personally definitely would not want to let my camera bodies and lenses um, sit in the belly of the plane uh, just because there's been so many horror stories that I've heard over the years about airlines losing luggage. So I would definitely be one of those pros that would keep my camera bodies and my lenses with me as carry-on and then let my light stands and lights and all that stuff go into the belly of the plane in one of the large Pelican cases. Now, like I said, I do have a few of the large ones, and I do specifically have one that carries my uh, Paul C. Buff DigiBees. I have three of the DigiBees and all of their accessories and stuff like that, and I do have those packed in a actual name brand large Pelican case, and it's got the telescoping handle and the wheels so you can pull it along behind you um, instead of having to constantly carry it in your hands like a footlocker. So there you have it. Um, that is... More information on photography gear. I will put a link to the original blog post um, uh, on my photography site. I'll put that in the show notes as well as the link uh, to canonrumors.com on the IBIS that I talked about possibly coming in select 
Canon DSLRs in the near future. And as always, I want to thank all my listeners again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show in iTunes and anywhere else you might be listening to it. And also be sure to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook. You do have to, it is a closed group, so you do have to answer one question to join the group. And that question is, to you have to give the name of the host of the show, which is myself. You can put Liam or you can put Liam Douglas. Either one will have you in like Flynn. And then you, once you're in the group, you are free to share your own original work. Now, as I mentioned in previous episodes and so far, we've had no problems with it. Please do not share other people's work in the podcast Facebook group page or you will be banned. I don't care if you have the photographer's permission. Do not share other people's work into the group. You're allowed to upload five photos every 24 hours in the Facebook group page. You can spread them out and release one every few hours throughout the day, or you can do all five at once and let Facebook make the little slideshow for it. That's perfectly fine. All I ask is that you only share your own original work. And if you want to receive critiques on your work, you can put CC please in your post, and one of us will be happy to give you some creative criticism and pointers on your work and areas where you might be able to improve your work. And we try to keep that as civil and polite as possible. I know some photography groups on Facebook, they have different levels of creative critique and like level four is like, uh, treat me like dirt. (laughs) But I think that's a little bit retarded. Um, So let's just stick with standard CC creative criticism and uh, we'll go with that and we'll stick with that. And of course, the reason why the group has the the, uh, question before you can join is to keep down the bots and spammers because Nobody likes those in a Facebook group. They make make it less fun for everybody. All right. I want to thank you again for listening to episode 29 of the Liam Photography Podcast, and I will see you again next week in episode 30.